The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. This is the last sermon today of a series that I've been doing on what I call taking spiritual inventory, trying to literally obey, implement, put into practice several commands in Scripture, one in particular, 2 Corinthians 13, where Paul, through the Holy Spirit, tells Christians, commands Christians, expects Christians to examine yourself. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith and to examine yourself to see how you're doing in the faith. So that's what we're doing. And so today is the conclusion. So if you've been with us the entire time through all six or so messages of taking spiritual inventory, you can breathe a heavy sigh of relief. Okay, there is an end in sight. There is a finish line, at least in this series anyway. Like I said, it's been six parts. First, emphasizing, are you saved? And then the last few weeks, we've been asking the question, uh, assuming that you're saved, are you growing? And how are you doing in growing and maturing and being sanctified as you run the race of the Christian life? So uh, if you haven't been with us, it would be important to go back and watch or listen to those previous five messages that really laid the foundation for what we're going to say Today, if you have a handout, one is provided, and we're just going to walk through that today. Uh, Today's title is Taking Spiritual Inventory Sanctification, asking the question, are you growing? Are you growing? And then today's point of emphasis, unlike last week, today's emphasis is faith in action. Faith in action, emphasis on the word action. On your part, on my part, James chapter 2 being doers of the word. You can't just have faith. If you have faith and it's not producing works through your life, it's empty faith, it's pseudo-faith, it's not real faith, it's counterfeit belief, and it's not producing works. You aren't really growing and maturing and progressing and being sanctified. That's what James says, as well as the rest of Scripture says that as well. So faith in action. How are you growing? So the idea here. Since it is taking spiritual inventory, you're supposed to be evaluating yourself and your own Christian life in light of Scripture and God's demands. So you take the magnifying glass to your own life with the help of the Holy Spirit through the grid of Scripture and other places to be informed as well to see how you're doing because that's it needs to be an objective process. God calls us to do it, therefore he expects we can We can objectively or successfully evaluate our own life and see how we're doing. We know that because Scripture says that. I also know that's true because I've heard back from so many of you the last six weeks. There hasn't been a week that's gone by in the last six six weeks of doing this series of where I didn't hear from somebody or actually a plurality of people, whether it was an email, personal conversation, text message, about this spiritual inventory that we have been doing, how it's been helpful, it has been challenging, there's been questions related to it, and as a result from it, that's, that's great. I made the comment a couple of weeks ago that in about 30 years of teaching the Bible and preaching, this series has prompted more noticeable feedback than anything I've ever taught on before. So that was quite unexpected and amazing, and I've been thinking and meditating and Praying, okay, Lord, what does that mean? And I trust that that was uh, prompted by the Spirit of God that this is what our body needed. This is what our people needed to do. 
Um, so I have been blessed, I have been challenged, and I know many of you have said the same. So let's go ahead and continue and conclude this spiritual inventory. How are we doing? Are you growing as a Christian? How's your sanctification going? And to help you, I've got uh, just 14 points. We're going to run through those. I wrote all the verses out for you just to, so we can move quickly. This is a macro study, big picture study, a survey, if you will. When we go through the Gospel of Luke, we're doing micro study, maybe one verse at a time or one phrase at a time or one little paragraph or statement that Jesus made at a time going slowly. This is the very opposite end of the spectrum. This is big picture, 30,000 feet, and we're going to get a lot of information and cover a lot of ground as a result. So let's do that. A couple theme verses. Oh, and the idea of having this handout here is to use it as a tool, if you would like. Hopefully that's helpful. That's kind of how it was intended, the way I crafted it, that once you're done and you fill in the, the blanks there, all the verses are written out for you. And I don't want to uh, deviate from Scripture as much as I want to make the main point and then read the Bible verse that's there. So that when you leave today, and the sermon you heard, for the most part, was just Pastor Cliff reading the Bible, which is really the best thing. You're getting undiluted Word of God. And I'll give a few comments here and there, but that's the idea. It's the living Word of God that you want to hear and understand. It's the Bible. That's what you want to walk away with, not Pastor Cliff's opinion, especially if it's a biased, distorted opinion. You want the Word of God. So that's the way this is intended, and that's why you can use this as a tool, hopefully perpetually, and put it in the back of your Bible, and maybe once a month you pull this out and evaluate yourself. Okay, Lord, during your prayer time, how am I doing? Now, there's 14 points here of things that Christians should be doing. 14. These are priorities in the Christian life. That's what you're evaluating yourself in light of. Why do you have 14, Pastor Cliff? Because I couldn't fit 15 on the sheet. No, you're laughing. I'm being honest. How do I squeeze? I squeezed 14 on by changing the font. I tried that on 15. didn't work. Well, why 14? Aren't there more? Yeah, there's probably like... 72, but I would say these are the priorities, definitely. Uh, the way, and I liken it to what's a central key priority organ in your life to sustain your physical life would be your heart. Your heart goes, you go. What feeds the heart? Blood, and there's only about 10 main veins going to the heart and from the heart. I've got 14 veins, 14 points of priority sustaining spiritual life that need to be ongoing and regular and pumping spiritual blood into your life and flowing from your life to ensure at least put you in a position where you can be on the road to progress of growing in holiness. So these are priority. These are key. Just about any one of these that gets tripped up or is deficient or missing in your life as a Christian your Christian life is going to be impeded. You're going to run into a, road, a roadblock. You're, um, you're going to be depleted. You may become uh, anorexic in your spiritual life as a result. And there will be consequences. So uh, that's the idea here. There are definitely priorities that have to be maintained. It's like all these cylinders, and there's 14, and they at least got to be in place. And there are secondary issues that play into it as well. So that was the idea here of being selective of the priority ones on any one of these. And they all have to function together. And you may be stronger in one area and weaker in another area. That's normal. A couple key verses. 
Uh, Philippians 2.12, what we're emphasizing today is Paul gave this command, hey Christian, work out your salvation, work out your salvation, ongoing present tense, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work at it, work hard, use energy, exertion, be deliberate, be proactive, be continual, plan ahead. It's the idea. Take charge and responsibility of your Christian life and your walk. It's not let go and let God. It's not just kicking back and being passive. That is not biblical Christianity. Philippians 2, 12, great verse. Uh, another verse, Philippians 2, 10. We all know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, great verse of how you got saved. By grace, by grace you have been saved. By grace. You didn't deserve it. It was a gift from God. We didn't earn it. Can't pay for it. By grace, Christian, you have been, sa- have been saved. You already are saved by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Paul's talking to these Ephesians. By grace, you have been saved. And it was through faith, the agency of faith. The, and that it was a gift of God. So the grace was a gift of God that you got saved. The faith by which to believe was a gift from God. It was not a result of human works that you got saved. That keeps people from boasting in their own sufficiency. It was all the work of God. All of his grace. And then we usually stop short after verse 9 celebrating salvation. And then in verse 10 says this. God saved you for this purpose. He saved you to make you his workmanship. Literally that word is a masterpiece. God saved you and made you a masterpiece of his own. A spiritual masterpiece by God. That is the Greek word. Masterpiece. Well I don't feel like one. Well you are one. Spiritually speaking from God's point of view. And it has nothing to do with you or me, or in our inherent abilities, or anything like that. It's God was the one that made us a masterpiece. For you, present tense, are his workmanship or his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus at salvation. That's how you became a masterpiece. Well, just to be saved and say, hallelujah, I'm going to heaven and I have fire insurance? No. That is not the end. That is the beginning. Salvation is the beginning. It's the rest of your life. You have to give to God as a masterpiece. He made you a masterpiece violin. Voila, you're a masterpiece violin. You don't just sit there and say, I'm a violin. You must be played, right? And that's what God intends to do. That's what he wants to do with you, Christian. How does he do that? Created in Christ Jesus for good works. There it is. Your life should be typified as a Christian by good works. Which God prepared. Here's the amazing thing. Well, good work. Can I do God work? Uh, good works, Pastor Cliff? Yeah, you can. Well, I thought uh, all I did was filthy rags. No, that's not, that's not a Christian. It's an unbeliever. You can actually do good works, because God said so, that please him. Well, where did these good works come from? Are they of my own doing? No. God prepared them before the foundation of the world, before you were even born. I'm going to create this individual, I'm going to save this individual, and I'm going to give them this giftedness, and I'm going to empower them with my spirit at salvation, and I'm going to use them as a vessel of my glory during their lifetime so that they reflect my majesty, and they're going to do it by human actions and good works that I enable them to do. That's what every Christian is called to do. We should be in the process of exhibiting good works because God wants us to He prepared these works so that we should walk in them. So God has given us good works to do. We better be walking in them. We should be doing what God expects. We should be working on becoming what God has already made us. they got to match. So the emphasis in these 14 points is on doing stuff. We haven't done that yet in this series. It's on doing. 
And had we not laid the foundation of the previous weeks, then if I preached this sermon all by itself without the context of the previous points I was making, this would just be legalism. And there are Christians who make that argument. They don't like the imperatives of Scripture. They don't like to be told what to do. They don't like the commands. You can't just preach a sermon. I remember when I preached through the book of James, I got that feedback from some people. Well, it seems like all you're doing is telling us what to do. Yeah, that's right, because James is full of nothing but imperatives. Sorry! <laughs> and I have to do it too. It's just the nature of the book. Here's what God expects. Be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. That's how that book starts out. Uh, so there are imperatives and commands all over Scripture. So I underlined the main imperative or command in each one of the verses in each of the points. That's, kind of the, that's what you should be doing as you're evaluating. Am I growing? Is this real in my life? Is this a pattern of my life? Is this characterize me as a Christian? Is this the trajectory that I am going in these 14 areas? That's the idea. Let's do it. Number one, as we evaluate, are we growing? Do you have a regular daily private prayer life? Do you have a regular daily private prayer life. Every word matters in the summary statement of these scriptures. Daily. As a Christian, you should be praying daily, and I'm not talking about a perfunctory 20-second prayer at mealtime, which is good to do. Did you know that Jesus prayed before every meal in the Gospels? Thanking God for being a provider. So I'm not saying don't pray before a meal, but if that's your prayer time, that is deficient. That's neglecting one of the greatest priorities in your life. You're not going to grow as a Christian if you don't have a regular daily, private, keyword prayer life. Jesus gave that command. Here's how you pray. Lord, teach us how to pray. Well, okay, I'll teach you how to pray. Here it is. It's not memorize the Lord's Prayer and say it as an incantation. It's actually do this. As for you, when you pray, go into your inner room. That's your prayer closet. Do you have a place to go? In other words, get away from people. Get away from the crowds. Get away from the distractions. Find a place, your prayer closet, wherever it is. Close the door. You're by yourself. You are in secret. He even uses the word secret here. And pray. There's the command. Pray to your father. Talk to your father. Commune with your father. Pour out your heart to your father. Plead with your father. Cry to your father. Rejoice with the father. This is fellowship with the father, the living God. This is true prayer. And you're doing this privately. Pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will Reward you. Do you want to be rewarded by God, Christian? Then have a private, ongoing, daily prayer, secret prayer life. Talking to God in normal language. Talking to Him from the Scriptures. Private prayer life. That's a good question. When was the last time? Just evaluate yourself. When was the last time you were locked away in a closet or someplace private by yourself for an extended period of time? Just you, for the sole purpose of having private prayer time with God. And if you're a Christian and you can't think of the last time, that's a problem. That's that's a red flag. That's a yellow flag. That's a good wake-up call. Wow. Okay, I'm not going to be rewarded by the Father. I'm not going to be growing as I should be growing. I'm going to have challenges that I can't overcome on my own. There, there's no way around this. By the way, prayer is hard work. Can I get an amen? Yes. We don't want to do it. Your flesh doesn't want to do it. Hey, prayer meeting next Sunday night. Uh, yeah, whatever. Hey, when's that next movie night? That, that's how our flesh works. This is a challenge, but Jesus said to do it. Daniel's a great model, Daniel 6.10. Jesus didn't introduce a new concept here. This is what Daniel, the saints of old did. Daniel, he was a great man of God in a very pagan culture. Very few believers around him, except he had an ongoing relationship with God with a secret daily prayer life. Where it says in Daniel 6.10 that, 
three times a day on a regular basis, he got on his knees and talked to Yahweh, his father. Yahweh God, prayer. And it was a regular pattern of his life for probably over 80 years. Exemplary. When's the last time, not only did you have a prayer life, when's the last time you were down on your knees praying? Like Daniel. Just, just a sign of humility, laying it all out before God your creator. So do you have a regular daily private prayer life? Number two, are you confessing your sins daily? Here's the imperative, James 5.16. Confess your sins. Confess your sins. It's a command, meaning it's an imperative. It's James is talking to Christians. You need to do this. It's present tense. You need to keep on doing this. It's middle voice, meaning you need to confess your own sins. Psalms tells us we confess our sins first and foremost to God, whom we have offended. And then in chapter 5.16 of James, we are also confessing our sins to one another, including, and first and foremost, the people we sinned against. Confess, homiletics, that's preaching, the doctrine of preaching, or preaching class, homiletics, that's the verb here, homilegeo, it means to confess, to speak, to admit, to fess up to, to agree with. In other words, you're agreeing with the person who's confronting you on your sin. Yes, I agree. That is what I did. That was the offense. That was the sin. I was wrong. I agree. Forgive me. That's confession. And it needs to be an ongoing, regular thing in your life. Confess your sins. 1 John 1, 8 and 9, if we say that we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves. Do you know that there are Christians who believe that? Oh, I don't, I don't have any sin because Jesus died for all of my sins. I, I've talked to Christians who, they believe that. Jesus died for all of my sins, didn't he? And I said, yeah, that's true. Well, therefore, I don't have to confess my sins on a regular basis. So I'm like, well, that is not true. Because when you do sin, even though legally your sins are forgiven, you've messed up fellowship between you and God is what you've done. You've hindered the relationship on a very personal, intimate level. And you need to go to the Father and confess your sin to him regularly and daily. Jesus said it daily in Matthew 6. So don't deceive yourself. Uh, and verse 9 of 1 John says, if we confess our sins, literally it should be when, when. It's assuming you will be doing this. Every Christian should have an ongoing, regular, daily confessional life. You should be confessing sin every day. We sin every day. You've got to get clean. If you go to bed and you haven't confessed sin of the day, it's just like, ooh, I'm, I'm dirty. It's like, i got to take a shower. That's what the whole point was in Jesus cleansing Peter's feet in John 13. Regular, ongoing, daily cleansing, shower for preserving the fellowship. So, are you confessing your sins daily, deliberately, specifically? You know what that'll do also? It'll soften your heart. It'll soften your heart. And also, it'll sensitize your conscience towards sin. If you are regularly interacting with your sin. So, do you have a regular daily prayer life? Are you confessing your sin daily? Number three, are you continually forgiving others? Are you continually forgiving others? Jesus said you need to do this. Matthew 6, 14 and 15. He said to the disciples, if you forgive others their trespasses, if you forgive others, present tense, sin, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Verse 15 is probably one of the scariest verses in the Bible, I think, of Matthew 6. But if you do not forgive others their sins or trespasses, then neither will your Father forgive your sins. You know what that means? The implication is there, then you aren't going to heaven. Because you can't get into heaven if you have at least even one unforgiven sin. What is Jesus saying here? Are you saved by work? No, basically he's coming at it from a different perspective. Basically saying, if you're truly a believer, then you're going to be a forgiving person. 
If your life is characterized by holding on to bitterness, unforgiveness, and not forgiving, putting on ridiculous conditions of forgiveness, then the Father's not going to forgive you, and you're probably not a believer. And if you're a Christian, you are recalcitrant, bitter, and you're going to be poisoned in your soul, it'll be detrimental, you've got to deal with it. This is just basic and fundamental to the Christian life. Are you continually forgiving others? And then in Matthew 18, that same book, Peter says, Lord, how often shall we then forgive a brother who sins against me? Should I forgive him uh, seven times? Peter thought he was being gracious. Proud of himself. And Jesus said, oh, no, no, Peter, Peter, you're not even close. You need to forgive your brother, not just seven times, but 77 times. 77 times. So says the NASB, the ESV, several other translations, 77 times. Then you got your King James, New King James, and the CSB that say, oh, no, Peter, not seven times a day, but 70 times seven times. That's 490 in a day. Because Luke 17, 4 has the parallel passage, and it says, per day. Those are the words of Jesus. A day. Peter, you need to forgive not just seven times a day, but 500 times a day. The same person, 500 times a day. And the idea, Jesus is just being emphatic and exaggerating. So you know what? You just need to have an ongoing, continual heart of forgiveness because that's the heart of God. He's forgiven you of all your sins, and your sins against God are more uh, grotesque, gruesome, and deserving of death than anything anybody could sin against you. You're not a holy person. You need to keep on forgiving and keep on forgiving and keep on forgiving and keep on forgiving. This is what makes marriage work. This is what helps marriage survive. Ongoing forgiveness between two sinners. So hopefully this characterizes your life, your marriage, your family life. Ongoing continual forgiveness. You must forgive. Colossians 3.13. You must forgive. You must forgive as God has forgiven you. Number four, do you love reading and studying the Bible? Do you love capital L, capital O, capital V, capital E? Love. I could, I written, my original sentence here was, uh, do you have a regular daily time in the word of reading the Bible and studying scripture? And then I thought, I was dissatisfied. And it doesn't cut it. Pharisees do that better than we do. Some deviant false Christian religions do that sometimes better than we do. So that doesn't really strike at the issue, and so that's why I changed it. Do you love reading and studying the Bible? You're not doing it in a perfunctory manner or legalistic manner. Oh, i got to get my Bible reading in today. Making yourself feel good. We should be reading our Bible every day, but it comes down, what is the motive? What's driving us? Why am I doing this? One thing should drive you as a Christian. It's because God has changed you. He made you a new creation. He put a spirit in you. And as a result, you love God. You used to be his enemy. And now you just, you love the Father. You love Jesus. You love his spirit. And you can't get enough of his truth, of what God thinks, of his hope, of his promises. This is all in the word. It's all in his scripture. This is the word of the living God. This is communion. This is how it happens. And you just long for and desire the truth of the Bible, of scripture, more than anything else in this life. As the deer pants for the river and the fresh water. Your soul pants for God and His truth. That only comes through Scripture. Do you have this longing, this desire, this craving like for nothing else in this world, for the truth of the Bible? That is the main thing that sticks out in my mind when I got saved at age 19 in college. 
got saved, and the next day, all of a sudden, I had this insatiable desire that came from who knows where. Man, I just want to keep reading the Bible. And I did. And then my fellow classmates were coming at McManus. You've got to go to class, too. Here at college, you're flunking out. I know, but I'm reading the Bible. It's spiritual. I love it. Yeah, but you've got to go to class and do your homework. No, I don't want to. All right. Anyway, that's a different story. So here's Peter. Oh, there's a typo there. It's 1 Peter 2, 2. Talking to Christians. Like newborn babes, little baby. Can't do anything. Newborn babe, got to be held. All they want, nappy time? Change my diaper time? Give me milk time. That's it. And they long for it. They crave for it. And it literally is what sustains their life. And it comes from within. And that's what Peter says. So, so look at, he, like newborn baby. Even if you've been saved for 50 years, you should still be like a, a newborn baby. Not an immature Christian, not a carnal Christian, but like a newborn baby. That's a good thing. That you have this ongoing craving desire. And the word isn't lust here, which sometimes is used neutrally. This is a different word. It's a compound Greek word. And it's got a preposition on the front of it to make it emphatic, to really accentuate this desire, this inner unsatisfied, longing, craving, desire for God's truth that is in his scripture. That is the only thing that can satisfy. Is that what drives you in Bible study or reading your Bible or going to hear a sermon or why you flip on the radio to hear a sermon or to listen to a CD of a biblical sermon or searching YouTube or wherever you can get the Bible or memorizing a Bible verse, anywhere you can get it at all times because it is your lifeline. It is, it is your IV of sustenance, spiritually speaking. And you know this is what gives you life. This should be your heart. Now, if you're not feeling like that and you're kind of blasé and a little callous and, well, man, I wished I desired to be in the Bible like that, but I'm not. Well, there could be a lot of problems or reasons for that. But at a minimum, just start and ask God. God, soften my heart. Give me, and give me the desire for your word. Keep praying that God, that's a perfect prayer. That is in keeping with the will of God. When you pray in the will of God, he will answer your prayer. God, I, I'm, I'm cold. I've gotten stale. I'm lazy. It's too hard. I want to be entertained. I don't want to read your word. God, give me the desire to hunger and thirst after righteousness. And you've got to keep praying that, and he, he will. And you know what? Once you get into it, it's an amazing thing because it's a dynamic Interchange. Once you get into the Bible and you start reading, it's like the Spirit just takes over. And it just feels natural to be there and give me more. And this is awesome. Feed your soul. Do you love reading the Bible? Number five, are you storing up treasures in heaven? Jesus said in Matthew 6, do not store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Do not store up, do not stackpile materialistic things while you are here on the earth as your priorities and your joys and your true treasures. Wow. That's quite confrontational. That goes against everything that's natural in my life and the American way. Don't do that, Jesus said. What are our treasures? Our treasures are the things we long for, right? The things we're thinking about, the things we plan for, the things we work for, the things we save money for, the things we put on the calendar. How do you know what your treasures are? That's how you, you got to figure out what are your treasures. What are you storing up for? What are you investing in? 
Are you investing only in this life? Well, don't do that, Jesus said. Do not store for yourselves treasures on the earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. You know, it's like when you get something expensive stolen and you get frustrated. And then you complain to friends about it. Can you believe somebody came in and they stole this expensive thing that I had and liked it so much? And then it's like, well, that's what Jesus said was going to happen. It's right here where thieves break in and steal. Thank you, Jesus. We are all vulnerable. No, I, I have great compassion for things getting stolen because I've had things stolen and I was not happy. But Jesus warned us, rather invest, store up, pile up, amass for yourselves treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven. Are you doing that? Let's just stop, pause, think, okay, Lord, am I investing in this life only or am I investing in treasures in heaven? And then start writing a list down as you evaluate yourself, all the ways, the things you're doing that are guaranteed, you are investing in eternity. You're investing in the hereafter. You're investing in the heavenly life, in the life to come. And those, and those hopefully outweigh the things you're investing here. There are some things legitimately to invest here, but the priority needs to be the next life. That's where your citizenship is. Our citizenship is in heaven. Eternally, forever, that's what matters. What are you treasuring up? What are you investing? And here's four things to keep in mind regarding that. Uh, what does it mean by investing? How we allocate our time, our money, our energy, and our thoughts. That's how we invest or treasure up. How are we allocating our time, our money, our, or our resources, our energy, things we do, and our thoughts? And then just, where's that all being pointed? Hopefully it's in... Heavenly things. What are the heavenly treasures? Uh, those are heavenly rewards. What does that entail? The uh, privileges. It's not just some crown Jesus gives you. Oh, by the way, come on in. There you go. There's your crown. Sit over there. Put that on. And I'm going to tell you to cast it down in just a minute. Okay, next guy. Here's your crown. All right, we're going to, on the count of three, we're all going to cast our uh, crowns on the, on the ground of the lamb, and you'll never get them back again. Revelation 5. That, what a misunderstanding of Scripture. That, that's not what that passage is saying. Uh, the rewards are something different. What are the rewards? Uh, primarily, they are privileges and responsibilities in heaven, starting in the millennium. The saints will rule over the world. The saints will rule over the angels. The saints will rule over the nations. The saints will all these delegated responsibilities as you're a queen or a vice regent and a king on behalf of Jesus. And it starts in the millennium and it spills over into eternity. These are responsibilities uh, that you do on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glorious unthinkable responsibilities and privileges that God gives us in the next life. These are the rewards. Are we investing in that? And then when you get to heaven, man, a lot of, we're going to be surprised at who's got all these privileges. Hey, how'd you get that? Why is your throne so shiny and tall and big? Because Jesus gave it to me. And you thought all the stuff you did in your life. And he came in with a blowtorch. And it turned out it was wood, hay, and stubble. Number six, are you regularly exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit? Uh, like Romans 7, 14 through 25. I'm just saying this because this is what I do as a Christian discipline. I've probably been doing it almost my whole life. Maybe somebody told me to do this when I was younger. It was a great advice. Regularly examine yourself in light of Romans 7, 14 through 25 because that's your autobiography that's in the Bible. So you should probably be reminded regularly of who you really are. And also do that with 
the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It, it's a good idea to memorize the fruits of the Spirit. It's also a good idea to memorize the deeds of the flesh, but we don't do that. Because that doesn't go well with flannel graph in Sunday school. Those are ugly pictures. That scares the kids. I don't think there's a better, more comprehensive passage of Scripture uh, in terms of evaluating your life to assess whether you are growing in the faith or not, whether you're walking a life of sanctification or not. It is so explicit. It is so specific. And the verbs are all present tense. And the command is you need to walk by the Spirit. Walk in obedience to the Spirit. That's what it means. To walk by the Spirit means just simply to be obedient to God as He is revealed in Scripture. That's what that means. Walk by the Spirit. Be obedient in light of the commands of Scripture. Walk by the Spirit. And it's a moment-by-moment reality. One decision at a time. It's not, I was walking by the Spirit for 17 hours in a row. No, you weren't. And neither was I. That isn't how it works. At any given moment, you can stop and assess, are you walking in the flesh in sin, or are you walking in obedience in the Spirit? Any given time. How do you know? Because he's explicit. Here are the desires of disobedience in the flesh at any given time that even Christians are vulnerable to. And here are the works of the flesh. They are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. These are sins against the body. And then there's the religious sins of idolatry and sorcery. And then the personal sins of enmity and strife, the social sins. Enmity, fighting, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, fits of rage, just exploding, losing your temper, rivalries, dissensions. These are corporate sins, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. These go on in the church among Christians. Envy, drunkenness. Do Christians stumble into drunkenness? Yeah, they do. And it's evil and it is wicked. Orgies and things like these, I warn you, I warn you again. These better not be a regular pattern of your life, because it might be that you're not a Christian. Rather, the pattern of your life and trajectory of your life should be the fruits of the Spirit, which include love, which is supernatural, and only Christians can love supernaturally, by the way. The love of God has been shed abroad in your heart. An unbeliever cannot love to the satisfaction and demands of God. They don't have the Holy Spirit living in them. Joy, it's joy in the Lord. Joy because of what God has done for you in salvation, first and foremost. So you can always be joyful no matter what's going on in your life. Peace, that's just because you've been saved, that's this unsettled uh, inner contentment you have no matter what's going on around you, and you're not driven by your emotions. You are just calm at heart. It's the opposite of anxiety, fretting, fearing, worrying. You have a supernatural peace. You're controlling and reigning in your thought life and your emotions with the help of God. That's peace. Patience is having a long fuse with difficult people and difficult circumstances, starting with your family and your spouse and your kids. And then next, it extends when you're driving and in bad traffic. You have a long fuse as you're being controlled. You're restraining your emotions. Kindness, that's just doing good things in a gentle manner with people. Goodness, the Greeks didn't even have a word for this. It has to do with moral rightness, doing morality. Faithful, that's the long-term, long-term stability, seeing the big picture, running the race over the course of time, being consistent over a long course of time. That's faithfulness. Gentleness in your words and in your actions, like Christ. Humility undergirds that one, gentleness. And then finally, self-control, that's in strength is the Greek word. And it's through a spiritual strength you're able to restrain uh, on the inside your inner passions and desires and appetites and lusts, which is very hard to do. 
Number seven, are you accountable to a local church? Obey your leaders and submit to them. Hebrews 13, 17, that verse assumes you go to a local church, you know who the leaders are, you've identified with them, you have willingly submitted to them with accountability, and you will listen to them and submit to them and follow their lead. You can only do that by being a member in a local church. Are you accountable to a local church? Another way to ask that is, are you a member of a local church? Well, you should be. And you don't have to be. I'm not just saying be a member of this church. You need to be a member of God's church and accountable. Number eight, are you in corporate worship weekly? Well, you should be. The Father is seeking true worshipers. Hebrews 10 says, don't neglect the regular fellowship of meeting together, as some have gotten in the habit of doing during COVID. Wait, did that say during? No, that didn't. That was, I added that last part. People were already doing that before COVID. Psalm 107, 32, extol God, worship God in the congregation of the saints. There it is. With God's people, it's a command. Are you in corporate worship weekly? If you're not, you're being disobedient. Unless, of course, you have a challenge where you can't come to church, and that's true of a lot of people who are homebound, and we need to help them. Number nine, are you serving regularly in the local church? In other words, what is your ministry? Every Christian should be able to answer that question if you were to be asked. What is your ministry? And that means your ongoing regular ministry in the local church that has some accountability and oversight of the leaders of the church. And it's ongoing. And it's approved by the church. And you're helping build the body of Christ into this precious bride, like Ephesians 4 says we need to be doing. What is your ministry? If you can't answer that question, that's a problem. Number 10, are you giving regularly from your income to God by giving it first and foremost to the local church? This is basic. Our members know this. Honor the Lord with your wealth. Proverbs 3.9 means give to God with your, the first of your income. Luke, Jesus said in Luke 6.38, give. It's a command. Give and it will be given to you. If you're a giving person, God will bless you. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is basic fundamental Christianity. Are you giving on a regular basis? It's not, oh, I give once a year at the end of the year. Well, how often do you get income? Well, 12 times a year. Then you're not being obedient to what Jesus said or what Scripture says. Number 11, are you discipling anyone or is anyone discipling you? Make disciples, Jesus said. That's the main verb. Maybe you're a mom and you're discipling your children. That's awesome. It's one of the most important discipleship ministries there is. Uh, Titus 2 says older men should be discipling younger men. Urging them to have self-control. Young men, what do you struggle with more than anything else? Self-control. How do I know? Because that's what Titus 2 says. How do I know? Because I was a young man. And it doesn't go away, by the way. So older men discipling younger men in the church... And then the same passage says, older ladies, you should be discipling the younger women. And there are priorities in that discipleship relationship. Number 12, are you telling unbelievers about Jesus? Do you evangelize on a regular basis? As, since you've been a Christian, have you ever given the full-blown gospel to an, an unbeliever? That's a good way to start. I remember uh, just a counseling situation I had. A person been a believer for 14 years. 14 years and finally out of the blue, I just decided, have you ever shared, when's the last time you shared the gospel with an unbeliever? And they were thinking, um, hmm, can't remember. Uh, and then they concluded, I, I don't think I ever have. Wait, you've been a Christian 14 years? Wow. Okay, don't make it so complicated. Just start with your family and tell them you're not the same person you used to be. And they'll say, what? And then there's your in. Oh, well, here's what happened. I met Jesus. What? And then you just keep going. And before you know it, they've heard the gospel. Number 13, do you see answered prayer uh, going on in your life? 
Because if you're growing and if you're praying and doing all these things and walking in obedience, you're just going to look behind you and there's a trail of just blessings. Count your blessings one by one. Because there's a lot of them. If you have answered prayer in your life, that's a good sign. Wow, thank you, Lord. At least I'm growing to some degree. Psalm 107, give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. That is a command. Why do you give him thanks? Because he's doing great things in your life. You're seeing answered prayer. And then finally, number 14, do you see progress over sinful patterns of behavior in your life? Do you see any progress? You know, that can really weigh us down and we get discouraged. These terrible patterns of behavior and we get frustrated and they're like a chain around our ankle and man, am I ever going to be able to shake this thing? And Well, it doesn't have to happen overnight. Maybe it's a pattern that happens little by little, incrementally, over time. Three steps forward, two steps back kind of thing. But that's God's promise to help us have some victory. He does it, it happens at different paces for different people. I, I know Christians who um, smoked cigarettes, not that that's an explicit inherent sin, but they were so addicted and then they got saved and boom, they just didn't have the desire anymore. And I know other Christians, is like they got saved and they still smoked cigarettes and they couldn't shake it. So it's God, sovereign God's help, but you got to keep pressing on. So I know that's a lot of stuff. And much more could have been said, but at least this is a good gauge for us to ask the Holy Spirit to help us honestly and objectively reflect. And when we do see progress and growth, that is cause for rejoicing, by the way. It is cause for being happy. And first and foremost, thank you, Lord. I am growing. I do love you. And now let's enjoy some baptisms. Join me in prayer before we sing a song before our baptism. Father, thank you for our time together and reminders from your word, from scriptures, most of which are commands to challenge us as you tell us forthrightly what's expected of us as your children, those of us as parents. We know that what this is like. We've got to do that. We have to give clear commands. We have to encourage our children to obey. We also have to hold them accountable, and then we have the joy of seeing all that come to fruition with time. And we know that's how you treat us as your beloved children. So help us. Give us grace to run this race, Lord. All for your glory. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.